Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 20, you'll hear Doreen Stern. If you're going to come, you're going to do it my way. My way. Do you get it? I've been doing this for 50 years. It's my way. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon members, Nate Osborne and Edward, thank you guys so much. We are so very grateful. Our Patreon members really are helping to keep this show running. This week's Patreon bonus story is by Holly Hutton. And I said, yeah, I'm thinking about killing myself. Like, real casual. And Carrie's, like, really casual back. Like, hey, you know, before you do that, you should come to Amsterdam. It's great. (laughs) That and so much more bonus content at patreon.com slash risk. Your donations are helping to pay 20 people who are working, you know, some part-time, some full-time, but a lot of people putting a lot of hard work into making this show happen and the story studio. Everything you might want to know about our Patreon is at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Ladies and gentlemen, many songs have been written, and this is one of them. (laughs) Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mo Horizons behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 20. Every six months or so, we do a little review of the stories that seem to have made the biggest impact with you, the listeners. We always tell folks that if you want to introduce the podcast to someone who's never heard it before, these best of episodes are perfect for that. And a reminder also that re-listening to stories, there's always new stuff to be found in re-listening. Let's jump right into the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from DJ Crystal Clear. And before that, a little something from Vin Brew. But before that, a little something from David Crabb, who is a staff member. He coaches people on storytelling here on the show and teaches at our school, The Story Studio. You can find him at davidcrabb.net. And here he is now with a story we call The Rainbow Connection. 
So I've been with my husband for 16 years. We met in 2002, but we count 2004 because we really fucked up the first two years. Um, And it's interesting having been with a same-sex partner for this long because I think in the early 2000s when you're a woman with a woman or a man with a man, you kind of feel like you're exempt from certain questions or rules, right? You're like, you're kind of punk rock because no one's going to ask you, like, when are you going to have kids? You're safe from that nonsense, right? Well, we're not safe now. Uh, I think a few years ago is when it started with my mother and a few other people. And it's always fascinating when people ask me and Jack, like, why don't you have kids? And I want to be like, why don't you give me (laughs) $40,000? Because that's how much it costs. It's an adoption application. It is a surrogate. It is like whatever it is. And it's funny because it's always kind of been in the back of our mind, but we don't live a lifestyle that necessarily leads to the kind of security you would want to have to raise a child in the world. When Jack and I first met, we were both actors in New York in the very traditional picture in the dictionary next to actor in New York, right? Um, We were in some little indies. We did some web series. We did what we did. And I loved dating because there is a thing that happens. Like when people will ask me, like, what do you do? I'll be like, well, I'm an actor, but I also do some like narrative work and I do some memoir and I sort of teach at Occidental College sometimes, but just part-time every other semester, but I'm also doing some sketch right now. And I'll answer all the questions and then they'll be like, what does your husband do? And I'm like, he's the same as me. And then they go, hmm. And it's a little lilt because what they want me to say is he's a very famous bone cancer doctor. That is what they need me to say because they want me to be like, bitch, go make art, right? Good for you, honey. You, you nailed it. But the thing is, I love being with someone that does what I fucking do. And when we were in New York together, when we first got together, we had the same kind of lifestyle. You know, we were like, what did you see on Actors Access today? I don't know what you see on Actors Access today. It was great. It was wonderful. And I loved it. And then when we moved to L.A. a few years ago, shit kind of changed. Um, Right before we moved, I uh, was doing a solo show that was very much about my real life. And I started doing a lot of storytelling stuff. I wrote a memoir. And my husband, Jack, his career leaned way more into, like, commercial acting. Um, When we moved to L.A. our first year here, he was cast as the father in the Father's Day ads for Home Depot. (laughs) Did I mention he's butch? Um, and it's a really fun thing to be a gay man whose partner is the dad and the daddy father. I, I, like, I was like, please, queers, stop. I, I've heard all the jokes before. They were like, your dad's the daddy. And I was like, bitch, stop. Uh, but, he, but yeah, he is. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because we were here and suddenly we kind of like, there was like a fork in the road, right? And I didn't do that. Now... To be clear, one of the things that my husband Jack did when we moved here is he did a lot of super commercial work, right? And I've been on my fair share of commercial auditions. And if there's a way that David Crabb fails in life that you can see in an active, physical, visualized way, it's David Crabb at a commercial audition for print. My husband looks like a cross between George Clooney and peak era Rock Hudson. He came out of some weird Jeff Goldblum fly machine to be like, hey, you haven't gotten fucked all throughout grad school, but I'll marry you. And I'm like, yes, like karma gave me this beautiful thing. He will eat like fucking chicken parmesan with spaghetti sauce on his face and someone will be like, I'm taking your picture. And somehow within a split second, he will turn and be like, and it's like Gucci. I will put on eight pounds of makeup and have my hair cut and pose for a photo. And there's a very famous photo of me with my husband and his family at a getaway. 
And they're very, like, old-school Pennsylvania Dutch family. They're the kind of, like, good stock people who are tall and healthy. They could, like, pull your truck out of the mud with their bare teeth and a strap in a snowstorm. Do you know what I mean? And in this photo, there's, like, 20 of them, and on the end is me. Like, I kind of look like Gollum, like, with no eye. Literally, it looks like a healthy family that took someone from a program for the day. Do you know what I mean? And when I go... When I used to go to auditions like this, it's the same thing when you walk into a room where they're doing a commercial print casting. You walk in, there's like a dude with an oversized like sports hat with the bill completely flat. He's like wearing chunky glasses. He's someone's dad, but he's dressing like he's 22. And he's behind a Nikon and he's just like, hey, just smile for me three ways, brah. If you could smile like really soft at first and then like show little teeth and then be like really happy at the end. Thanks, dude. And when I go in the room with that guy, What happens is this. Smile a little softly, and the first part's okay. It's weird. I look like I might have hurt someone, but it's acceptable. It's like... And then the next part is like, show some teeth now. And then I sort of start to look like um, a dog that might hurt you. It's It's like a very kind of detached, frozen... And then when they go to, like, the last... Okay, full smile, you're happy. And then I become, like, an Easter Island stonehead. Do you know what I mean? Like, one of those, like... Like, it's like there are forces inside my head controlling my face, and they don't send each other memos about what to do. And it's miserable. And especially the auditions where there were other actors waiting, and they're watching you perform, because that's a thing in the world, rich. You don't know this because of your story, because you don't act. It's more of a nightmare than you even know. Then, then even Denny's let you know. You go, and then as you leave and you feel terrible, you see someone at an iMac who's like a fetus looking at your face and laughing, and you see the image of your face going... And it's like a fucking nightmare, right? I'm bad at this. I'm happy not doing this. And then our first year in L.A., Jack says, Hey, babe, we got a commercial audition if you want to come with me. And I'm like... Mm, I don't I don't like it. And then he says, but no, no, no. It's like, you know, real people casting, right? And I'm like, so like I just get to like tell stories and like be funny and like talk to people. And he's like, yeah, babe, that's what you get to do. So I'm like, okay, I'll fucking go with you. <laughs> so we go to the casting. I'm so excited just to talk and be charming. We get to the casting place. And when we open the door, the first thing we see is a fucking mountain of five to nine-year-old boys. They are, there are 50 of them. They are screaming and punching each other and climbing over each other. They are a nightmare of humanity. Um, and it's the L.A. version of boys. Like, two of them are literally stabbing each other with swords they made out of their own headshots. Um, just like, ah, nah, nah, just cursing, just a nightmare. And there's a thing, like, I have a nephew who lives here that I love. I love taking care of him. But I feel like boys, unlike girls, from five to seven, just send them to an island. Let them just, like, pick their nose and touch their penises and just grow up on their own for just a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Because they're a weird... They're weird. They're aggressive. And when we go to sit down, I'm like, I don't know what that casting is, but it's fucking nuts. And then Jack goes up to the wall by the door where we're going to go in, and he's, like, Blair witching the wall. Like, he's standing there, like, facing it way too long, like, unencumbered. I'm like... And I look at him, I'm like, babe, what's happening? He's like, you need to come look at this. And I go up to the wall, and it is the storyboard for the commercial, which is for a bank, Right? this little audition that's just like me being myself and answering some questions. And it is a storyboard for a commercial in which me and Jack 
we go to uh, an orphanage overseas and we're on an airplane and then the images of us going into the orphanage and then we see like a bunch of children playing and then there's a close-up of me looking at him and there's a tear in my eye and I say, why don't we talk about that boy? And then there, we go into the room and then there's a room and there's a therapist and there's two of us and we're talking and then the boy comes in and the boy comes in, dialogue, 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 two pages of dialogue and then we say, yes, we want to take him home and then we're on an airplane with the boy between us, dialogue, 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 I pass him a small stuffed toy, he does it, he has a single tear, we get to our beautiful mansion that we live in in Vermont we do in the driveway we go inside the little boy runs up the stairs dialogue 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 we go upstairs the boy is in his bedroom he's playing with toys he looks up and he says I finally feel like I'm home in the doorway there's a storyboard I hold his hand dialogue 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 we cry that's the little commercial that I'm just going to answer some fun questions and be myself and right as I'm processing this is fucked up and I don't want to do this someone with a clipboard comes out and they're like David Jack Rainbow From the mountain of boys Rainbow erupts He is a beautiful uh, Boy He is uh, black He's probably seven He is in a little like Tweed jacket And slacks And a fedora He's like a very Just New York Little cute accountant Um, And He runs past us And he's screaming He's like Hey everyone I'm here now What's your name? name David My name's Rainbow 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 He's doing somersaults In the room And I look at Jack And I'm like This is not what I signed up for I do not want to be here Right now with you honey And as that is happening He is bouncing all over the room We go in the room Which is like a dude Who's like 24 He's got the flat cap With the tag on it He's total fucking skater bra A sleeve on one arm Behind a Nikon And he looks at us And he's like Hey Rainbow And Rainbow just is like Yes, Rainbow. Like, he is, like, Hollywood trained. That fucking kid is like, I'm an actor. Like, he stops all of his nonsense and just is like, yes, I'm someone's son. He, he is standing there between us, and I'm trying to process what's happening as the guy who's running the audition, like, behind the camera, he's like, okay, so um, talk to me about family. And I'm like, okay, cool. This is where I shine. And I start saying, I'm like, well... You know, family's really interesting. Like, I'm the only child of a single mother who grew up in Texas. So I think my perspective is really different than my husband. He's one of five. He grew up in a Pennsylvania Dutch family in a, in a landmarked home. And, da, 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 and I'm going on, and the director says, please stop. Um, I just need to know, like, do you want kids? And there's this moment where, like, I, I, like, I see the red light on the camera. And, like, and, and I look at Jack, and I, and I start to think about it. I'm like do I fucking want kids? I mean, I've been with this person for like a decade and a half. Like, is that a thing I want? Is that a thing that I've forgotten that I could have? Maybe I've like fucking forgotten that because of like our lifestyles and who we are. And maybe that's something that actually like matters to me. And as I'm processing all of this, I realize that Rainbow is between us and he's kind of looking back and forth to us. Kind of like this. Looking back and forth. And it hits me before Rainbow speaks what he's thinking. And I know what he's thinking. He is a child who has never been in an audition scenario as the child of two people, neither of whom have a vagina. And I can sense him processing what he's processing. And before I can speak, he says, Who's the lady? Which one of you is the lady? Who is the lady? Who's the lady? And he's saying it over and over again. And I'm like, oh, this is not what I wanted. And I'm starting to kind of like panic. And as he asks over and over again, 
my husband starts to panic seeing the red light and he starts to say like weird bullshit he starts to talk about like gender binaries and I'm like this is a seven year old like what are you doing gender binary gender is just a perspective blah 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 blah, blah. he's like reading a Vox article to this like fucking child you know what I mean and I'm just like looking at the guy and as this is happening the guy filming us he's kind of descending behind the camera because I know he's trying to hide his face he's laughing at us and right as I'm processing all this rainbow points at me and he says you're the lady you you are the lady it's you you're the one of the two of you who is a lady you're the lady and he's saying this over and over again I'm like what the fuck is happening right now I never want a commercial audition again and finally, the fucking guy behind the camera, he, like, pulls himself together, and he's like, Rainbow! And Rainbow's like, you know, pulls it together, and he's like, hey, we just need to shoot the commercial, right? So Rainbow, like, Rainbow, of all people, gathers us. He grounds us, he centers us. And then they have the room set up with furniture, and we do all the fucking storyboards. We see him, we, they film us, like, seeing him, and I tell Jack, like, I think, like, he seems really awesome. They film us meeting him. They film us like getting in an airplane. They make airplane seats and we do the action of passing like the toy horse behind Rainbow like it's a surprise. And then we like fake get out of a cab and then we go up the stairs of our mansion that we're never going to live in ever. And we go into the room and Rainbow like plays with all his toys and he looks up at us from his fake bedroom which is just like some like crates and he looks up and he's like I'm so happy here. And in the doorway like I hold my real actual husband's hand and I'm like I'm so happy right now and I'm like oh my fucking God, like, I think I want to have a child. And then the guy filming us says, cut. And Rainbow says, have I shown you what I can do? I can do a somersault and I can also take my pants off. Have you seen me if I pick my... And I'm like, get me out of here. I fucking want away from this child. I don't want to be in this room. Jack, can we get a cab or call a Lyft or do you have an Uber? I don't know. And we leave the room as Rainbow is literally like assaulting the walls so that he's bouncing like a fucking pinball. Like, no, 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 I can pick my nose now. Just going fucking insane. And we get in a cab and we're in the cab, we're driving home and we're talking about this experience that we had together as two people who are both actors living in this weird sort of hard to define space. And I'm like, this is fucking what I want. I want to be with you in this space and I don't know if there's room for a kid in that. And over the next few months, we actually had this real genuine talk about what it meant to be a parent. Because, like, we take care of my nephew now who lives in L.A., and his mom is a single mom, and it's fucking hard. Like, anyone in this room who has children and raises them, that is the most intense fucking job I can ever imagine in the world, and you deserve all the credit for that. But it really forces you to think about, like, well, what do you want? And it's funny because my husband turned 40 a few months ago. And we were out at a restaurant, and we were having tacos, and it was like 12 of our friends were having the best time in the world, and we're not kind of really like celebrating the birthday, because it's 40, you know, you keep it quiet. <laughs> and at one point, someone after like a giant taco brings out like a cupcake, and there's a candle in it, and we're all, no one sings happy birthday, we're just kind of like, oh, Jack, and he blows out the candle. And then, this child parts the crowd, and he comes up to us, and he's this beautiful little kid, and he says... You should sing happy birthday. And I'm looking at this kid, and it's like he's a ghost from The Shining, like I know him. And we all, all of us well over like 30, are like, okay, child, happy birthday. So we sing happy birthday to my husband, and he like, they relight the candle, and he blows it out, and it feels real. It's like, well, that was a beautiful fucking thing. And then the kid walks away with his parents, 
And then as he walks past the fence where we are, Jack leans over and he's like, that's Rainbow. (laughs) And I'm like, that's Rainbow. (laughs) And as he passes us, he's in a little fucking fedora, which I know it's unacceptable on a grown person, but on Rainbow it looks amazing. (laughs) And as he passes us, he just waves by like really cute and smiles. And he's like two years older than when we last saw him. And as that happens, I lean over to Jack and I say, there goes our son. (laughs) And you know what? I am really okay with that. Thank you. Lady? I'm your knight. And shining armor and I love you years ago, my wife and I were in a pretty terrible place. More specifically, the Cheesecake Factory at the Short Hills Mall in New Jersey at Christmas time with my entire family. Everyone was already on edge when we got there because there was an hour-long wait to be seated. My parents are complaining the music's too loud and it's too cold, and my sister's three young boys are bouncing off the walls, and my brother's baby's crying, and I'm just trying to put my head down and not draw any attention to myself, which is tough because... My family pretty much thinks everything I do is weird. Like, I ordered fish tacos, and immediately my dad's like, Fish tacos? What in the hell? Like, what, are you got a diet or something? You know, because unless you're eating half a pound of raw beef for dinner every night, you're a goddamn communist pussy. So I'm just trying to power through until it's time to go back to my sister's house for dessert. But at some point, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, hey, uh, we parked really far away, so better get a head start so we can meet you guys back at the house. I don't think anybody actually bought that, but they were like, yeah, whatever, just get out of here. So we get up to leave, and as I'm walking past my dad, he pulls me aside and whispers in my ear, Hey, if you get to the house before us, hide Dingle. 
And he winks at me, and I'm like, what the f- Hide Dingle? Like, is this some kind of old-timey euphemism? Like, is my dad encouraging me to have sex with my wife in my sister's house before everyone gets there? Because that's weird. So I'm like, huh? And then he goes, the elf. You gotta hide the elf. And he winks at me again, and I'm like, okay, is he calling my dick the elf now? Because that's not okay either. Like, what's going on here? Is he having an aneurysm? And that's when he explained Elf on the Shelf to me. Yes, Dingle was apparently the name of my sister's kid's Elf on the Shelf. If you're unfamiliar, like I was, Elf on the Shelf is this relatively new Christmas tradition where parents tell their kids that this creepy elf doll is spying on them and reporting back to Santa to make sure that they behave. And then whenever the kids go out, the parents hide the elf in a new spot so that when the kids come back, they think that the elf has magically flown itself wherever it ended up. It's weird but not as weird as the conversation I thought we were having, so I happily agreed to hide Dingle. So my wife and I get to my sister's house before everyone else because, of course, we hadn't actually parked that far away. And we walk in, and I see Dingle dangling from the ceiling fan, and I grab him, and I start looking for a hiding spot. Now, I really want to do a good job with this. You know, I take pride in my work, and I also want to prove to my family that I am not a total moron and I am capable of handling simple tasks. But most importantly, I want to see my nephew's faces light up when they walk in the door and see that Dingle's flown to a new hiding spot and really experience the magic of Christmas again through their eyes. So I'm looking around, and I see these two sconces above the fireplace, and I'm like, ooh, that's perfect. So I put Dingle in one of the sconces, and he fits nice and snug in there, and his arms are hanging over the side, and his smile is all lit up nice, and I actually took a picture of it and put it on Instagram with the caption, Elf on the Mother and Shelf, because Uncle Vin's hip, kids, he's with it. And then I sat on the couch, basking in the glow of a job well done, waiting for my nephews to burst through the door, which they did a few minutes later. And I watched as my eight-year-old nephew's face turned from excitement to horror as he yelled out, Dingle! No! And that's when I smelled the burning. Yep, apparently Dingle had flown a little too close to the sun. Or the light bulb, in this case. And he was on fire. Yeah, I looked over and saw a huge plume of smoke billowing out from the sconce, and I was like, oh, shit. So I jump up, and I run over to try to save Dingle, and that's when my nephew starts screaming at me, Don't touch him! No, you can't touch him! If you touch him, he's gonna lose his magical powers! And I was like, oh, shit. Uh, 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 okay. Well, uh, I don't want Dingle to lose his magical powers, certainly. But I also don't want you guys to lose your house, so... Sorry, kids. So I grab Dingle out of the sconce and throw him on the floor, and I just start stomping on him, and the kids start going nuts. Like, why, why, Bob? Why would Dingle do that? Why would he light himself on fire? They think he put himself there. They don't know that I did that. So to them, Dingle just decided to self-immolate. So they're screaming, and then the rest of my family rushes in to see what all the commotion is, only to find me trampling this poor elf in front of my traumatized nephews in a room full of smoke. So after I finally extinguished Dingle, I shamefully looked up, and all of the adults in my family were just standing there silently consoling children while glaring at me with this look in their eyes that very clearly said, What the fuck is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? And the answer is no, apparently. I don't know, man. I thought it was a great hiding spot. Okay, had I known Dingo was so flammable, probably would have made a better choice there. But, uh, hey, hindsight is twenty twenty, is it not? Anyway, that's the story of how Uncle Vin ruined Christmas. 
and why now, every holiday season, I just have one phrase floating through my head. Poor Dingle. Poor, poor Dingle. Happy holidays, everybody. Right, so it's 1978. It's a Saturday, and my mother decides to take my sister and I shopping, like you would do on a Saturday afternoon. My sister is eight. I'm 13.、Uh, I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we went to the Whitehall Mall to go shopping.、Uh, you know, there's a Sears in there, and my mom had to get a bunch of different stuff. So we go into the mall, walk around, as usual. Security starts following us. We're the only black family in the town, by the way, so of course we're always going to be stealing. So we're walking around, and I notice this twenty-something white guy following us and then turning away, following us and then turning away. So I knew what was up, and my mother knew what was up. So after a few minutes of this, my mom said,、uh, "It's time. We're going to start the parade." And parade was code for we're gonna walk all around the store and fuck with security. That's basically what it meant. So more and more security guards start coming around, and this this is 1978, so they are looking like、uh, you know mall security without being security. They're in black suits with white shirts and black ties. You get what I'm saying. So we're wandering around, and there's more and more circling us. And we're walking from department to department. You know, we're in housewares, we're in kids. My mom needed a pot and a pan, whatever. We're walking around, and she started to get more and more upset and angry as we walked around because more and more of these guys were following us. So she walked us into a dressing room and said, "Okay, we're going to have a big parade today. This is what we're going to do. Crystal, I need you to go around and get an extra shopping cart." So you and your sister and I will each have a shopping cart, and we're going to go around. And I want you to pick up two of everything, and I don't care what it is, just throw it in the cart, right? Okay. So we're giggling. My sister's giggling. I'm giggling. Like, ooh, it's going to be a big parade. This is awesome. She winked at both of us, walked around, got the carts. Like, okay, here we go. So we start walking around. And picking up two of every, you know, pick it up, give it the once over, twice, throw it in the cart. Didn't matter what it was. We got hammers, we got shoes, we got jewelry, you know, dog toys, and we didn't have a dog. Didn't matter. Handbags, all kinds of accessories. Ah,、uh, this is about ten or fifteen minutes worth. Before we knew it, there were twelve men following us around. Okay, pretending to not look at us, which made it look even more obvious that they were watching us. Hello. So, carts are overflowing. We can't pick up anything else. And my mom said, "All right, let's go to the cash register." So we go over to the cash register. My mom is first. I'm second. My sister's third. Like you know, holding, pushing the cart because she's little. And we get to the cash register, and there's this young kid at the cash register. He looks kind of like a young Ron Howard, like an Opie Cunningham kind of thing. And he's nervous and scared and wondering why are these black people with these all these carts and all this? Do they have the money to buy all this stuff? I don't know. 
So we're standing there and he's freaking out. And my mom says, um, you know, let's go. And he says, uh, or, um, so you want all this stuff? Are you sure? And my mom says, ring it up, Junior. Let's go. I'm in a hurry. So he's looking at all this stuff. He obviously can't do it by himself. So he gets on the horn and calls for backup. So then we hear like click, 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 these high heels coming. And there are these two women who were in their little suits, their fake Chanel suits with their name tags on. And they walk over to the scene and it's like, what the hell is going on? They're saying to themselves. And security, uh, you know, they're pretending to pick up shirts and look at things and they're staring at us the entire time. So woman comes over and she's like, uh, excuse me, ma'am. Um, are you really going to buy all this stuff? Are you sure you want all this stuff? My mom said, yeah, and make it snappy because I got to pick my husband up at the Lehigh Country Club. We're in a hurry. The golf clubs are in the trunk. We got to get him to him. So let's go. Let's make it snappy. So they're just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. So the manager is just like, all right, whatever. And they start ringing the stuff up. So it's the head woman and the second in command and then Ron Howard. And it's like, uh, beehive, you know, it's like, pick it up, look at the name tag, blah, blah. And this is the 70s. So it's like, click, clack, 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 ding, click, clack, click, clack, ding. And they're putting stuff in bags and they don't know what to do. Like, I can't put a toaster in a bag. There's a blender, you know, it's, it's golf cart. Like what the hell? So this goes on for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mom is just standing there with her arms crossed, like, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's see what's going on. Hurry up. And she's looking at her watch, like, let's go. And my sister and I are just like, you know, standing next to each other, holding each other's hands. And uh, they get to the last five things, the last five items. If I remember correctly, it was a toaster oven, a microwave oven, a set of tools from the tool department, like a drill and all this other stuff in a big toolkit. There were like 10 pairs of shoes. <laughs> so... My mom says, oh, hold it a minute. Uh, there's uh, on the counter, there's a little display for juicy fruit gum. And she goes, oh, yeah, you know, I, I want a pack of gum. Just hold it a minute. Can you give me a pack of gum? I want some gum. I want to give my daughter some gum. And so the young Ron Howard kid's like, uh, okay, you know, so he picks up the gum and hands it to my mom. She goes, how much is it? And he's like, 10 cents. And she said, all right, is there any, is there any tax on that? And he goes, no, it's just 10 cents. So she flips a dime on the counter. They ring everything else up. So my mom says, wait a minute, how much was the gum again? And he goes, 10 cents, ma'am, you gave me 10 cents. She goes, oh, okay, that's fine. So they get to the very last item, which I believe was the microwave oven. And this is 1978. So the microwave oven was like the size of a Buick, okay? They can't get it in a bag. You know, what, what's going on? They're freaking out. So then my mother says, oh, wait, wait a minute. You know, all I want is the gum. I changed my mind. <laughs> so they all were completely gobsmacked, uh, like blood drained out of their faces, like Dracula just bit them. They didn't know what to do. And they're just like flabbergasted. And oh my God, and, uh, blah, blah, blah. and security, they're all, you know, like talking into their wrist, blah, 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 looking around. So the kid goes, wait a minute, you only want the gum? That's it? And my mom said, yeah, I changed my mind. So two of the security guards walk over and they're looking at the scene 
And my mom holds my hand with her right. My sister's with her left. And we're all just standing there chewing the gum, like clacking it and cracking it and everything, blowing bubbles, you know, really getting into it. And the security guard says, uh, I'm sorry, lady, you can't do that. And my mom said, can't do what? Change my mind? I do that shit all day long. All I want is the gum. So Junior, give me a receipt. So the kid's like, uh, I, uh, I, I don't know. And then the manager woman is like, um, you can't do that. And my mom said, sure, I can. I changed my mind. I just want the gum. The second woman, you can't do that. What are you doing? She goes, I changed my mind. I just want the gum. That's all I want. So then another security guard comes over looking at everything on his walkie talkie. And then two other came over and then two others came over. So we're standing there like, you know, cracking my gum. My mom's all pissed off. The head security guard says, uh, look lady, you know, I don't know what you think you're doing here, but this, no, you can't do this. And my mom says, sure I can. And you know why? Because I'm fucking sick of you motherfuckers following us around. Like we steal stuff. We don't steal anything here. We've been shopping here forever. Every single time I come in here, you guys are following us around and that shit ends today. So then she looks up at the security camera behind them, behind the cash register. And she says, now listen up. Okay. Pay attention. We've been shopping here forever. This is the last fucking time security's going to follow us around because if we come back in here, I'm calling the cops. My husband is the president of the local NAACP chapter. He's president of Kiwanis. He was president of the Lions Club. He writes an op-ed piece for the morning call, okay? That's the daily paper. So you better not follow me or my kids if we ever come back in here. If I have any other black person come to my husband and tell us that, we, that they were followed around, we're gonna come back here and we're gonna picket your asses. We're gonna get you on the news and we're gonna shut this motherfucker down. So they were like, what the fuck? Oh my, I mean, just spazzed, completely spazzed. They didn't know what to think. And my sister and I are like, yeah, this is good. This is good, yeah. I like it, this is fun. So my mom's eyes start to well up with tears and she squeezes my hand really hard and I start to well up. And within about five seconds, my mom righted herself and just, you know, held it in. And she said, now, is there anything else? You got another problem? What's happening here? And they were like, um, no, ma'am, everything is fine. It's okay. And she goes, junior, where's my fucking receipt? I gave you 10 cents for the gum. I want my receipt. And he's like, Oh, uh, uh, I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And so he's like, Oh, okay. And he gets the receipt. So my mom says, thank you very much. We have to get to the country club right now. So she takes us by the hand. We walk out and we walk out to the parking lot. And my mom says, you know, kind of turn around a little bit and see if they're watching us. So I pretended to drop my gum and I bent down and picked it up and I looked and yeah, they were all pressed up against the glass, staring at us as we walked to our car, wondering what was going on. So we get in the car, put our seatbelts on. My mom says, okay, I'm going to drive around. Be sure to wave girls. So we drive around and we waved at everybody and they're like, what the fuck? (laughs) And we waved and said goodbye. Like we were Miss America pulled out of the parking lot 
And that was how we ended our day. But P.S. It is the year 2020, okay? Black Lives Matter. Shit is still fucked up. And I still get followed by security. And guess what happens when they fuck with me? Take a guess. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. This is Risk. This is the godfather of soul, James Brown, behind me now. And we just heard from DJ Crystal Clear, who you can find on Instagram, at DJ Crystal Clear. And look for Crystal's fantastic music podcast, Original Versus Cover. Before Crystal, we heard from Vin Brew, who's on Instagram, at Vin Brew, with a story called Elf on the Mother Effin' Shelf, that was edited by our editor, John LaSala. And before that, a little interstitial all about ladies that Jeff Barr edited based on David Crabb's story. And speaking of David Crabb, he's a faculty member at our school at thestorystudio.org. And he's teaching a two-day workshop called Finding New Stories. Do you ever think, I'd like to tell a story, but I'm not sure if I have one. Or I'm not sure which idea to work on. This is the workshop for you. It'll be taught online, so you can take it from anywhere in the world. It's Saturday, March 6th and Sunday, March 7th, 1.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. And that's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. 
All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The final story on this Best of Risk number 20 episode will be by Doreen Stern, a story that Doreen told at one of our live stream shows. But before Doreen, we're going to hear from Laura Ford. Now, part of the nature of risk is that as much as possible, we want storytellers to feel like they don't have to walk on eggshells here, like they can speak with the raw candor that they might normally speak to their therapist with, for example. Like this show is one place they can share things that are messy, things that might make some listeners uncomfortable. On most shows, people have a tendency to self-censor, to try to make themselves look look flawless or to try to speak in a way that they suspect an audience might want them to speak. And to be honest, it's gotten harder to produce a show that dares to do that. Now that we live in a world where people have grown very used to yelling at one another online, people very used to telling content producers, how dare you have put that perspective out there? But we keep at it. And this next story by Laura Ford is a perfect example. It got more of a reaction online than anything else we've run in the past six months. A very wide variety of reactions. So after the story, stay tuned because I'll come back to say more. And so will Laura Ford and her story coach, Cindy Freeman. And now here is Laura Ford with a story we call heartbreak. I grab Carter, my husband's hand, as we walk into Bertha's office. I look at him and I say, oh my God, I feel like we're going in for an ultrasound because we are going in to meet with Bertha, who is Manny and Jay's social worker. They are two brothers, ages eight and 10, who we are hoping to adopt from foster care. And this is our matching meeting. This is when we learn about their personal history, their medical history, their schooling, and we get to decide if they're the boys for us. And we sit through this matching meeting and there are no red flags for us. These two boys really love performing arts. They're active and both Carter and I work in the performing arts field and their interests really align with us and we're just thrilled. So on the way home, I'm I'm bouncing in my car seat. I'm like, oh my gosh, Carter, we are going to be parents and we've wanted this for so long. It's going to be in about two months when they finally get to move in for real. But in the meantime, we're going to have almost like a little dating period. So we're going to get together a couple nights a week and then they'll have their first overnight and then they'll sleep over for a longer period of time until slowly they just permanently move in. 
So after a few weeks, we come to the first sleepover and whew, <laughs> it is wild. It is noisy in our house. We're not used to two preteen boys with us, but it is chaotic. It is loud. And Carter and I look at each other and we're just smiling because this is exactly what we wanted. Before they go to bed, we decide to go and play a board game in our finished basement. And um, everyone's having a great time and we finish the game and Carter goes, all right, time for bed, everyone. And Jay, the youngest, jumps up and goes, no, I don't want to go to bed and runs up the stairs. And we hear click and Manny, Carter and I look at each other and we go, did he just lock the door? <laughs> and we all burst out laughing. The social workers told us, prepare for the unexpected. And whew, <laughs> yeah, that was unexpected. <laughs> Luckily, Carter had his house keys with him. So he was able to go out through the basement door and unlock the front door. And we found Jay sitting sheepishly on his bed, but everything was fine. <laughs> The next time they came over, it was for a two-night sleepover, and they brought their bicycles. But I was surprised that they didn't bring their helmets, and they were both like, no, we never have helmets, we don't use our helmets when we ride at our foster mom's house, so it's not a big deal. I'm like, no, no, you're gonna ride with helmets, we'll go to the store before you can ride on your bikes. So we went to Target, Manny bought this shiny blue helmet, and Jay bought one of those helmets with those like spiky fake mohawks on it. And they were so excited. So we got back from Target and I'm exhausted <laughs> because I'm not used to this. And Carter goes, why don't you take a nap and I'll take the boys out for a bike ride. I wake up suddenly from my nap because someone's banging on my front door. What? What's happening? I'm hot and sticky. I go to my front door and it's this woman I don't know. Hurry, hurry, you have to help. You have to come. There's been an accident. What? What accident? Your son, your son's been in an accident. I'm like, oh my gosh. What? Where, where's Carter? What's happening? Get in your car and follow me. I'm just down the street. Oh my God. So I, I grab my keys. I get in my car. And when I turn down her street, all I see is flashing lights. And, and there's so many flashing lights. I, I pull over and a blur just zooms into my car and I hear, go, 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 go. And I turn around and it's Manny. Manny, what happened? What's going on? Go, go, go. Manny, hold on. I have to, I have to go see what's happening. When I get out of my car and I see a stretcher and I, I run over and I see Carter and I'm like, Carter, what happened? And it's Jay. Jay's on the stretcher. And he looks at me and he goes, we were riding our bikes and we went down this big hill and Jay couldn't stop and he stopped really suddenly and then he flipped over the handlebars and I couldn't stop him and it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And they're, they're going to take him to the hospital and so all of a sudden before I could stop them, the ambulance doors close and they drive off and I am left standing on the street alone. So I go back to my car and I say, okay, okay, Manny, we, we're going to follow him to the hospital. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go to the hospital. I say, okay, we're, we have to go to the hospital. 
So we get to the hospital with just enough time for Carter to meet us out in the lobby and for him to tell us, okay, we're being airlifted to Boston. What? Yep, we're being airlifted to Boston and I'll call you later. He kisses me on the cheek and he leaves. And once again, I'm left alone and I look at Manny who is crying and still trying to hide under a blanket that he grabbed from the car and I say... Okay, okay, Manny, okay, everything's gonna be okay. Okay, come on, let's, let's go take a break. And I realize, okay, Carter has Jay, and I have his, his brother, I have Manny, and he's my responsibility, and I have to put my energy into him right now. So we go to Dunkin' Donuts, and we get a donut, and I pull up some funny videos on YouTube because I just want to make him feel okay. And Manny looks at me, and he says, can we, can we take a selfie? I say, okay, okay. So we take a selfie and I look at it and I look horrible. (laughs) I look like I'm fighting back tears and Manny is smiling. He just has this big, beautiful smile on his face. And he looks at me and he goes, Laura, that's our first selfie together. And um, we go home and I get a call from Carter who tells me that Jay's injuries are are scary, but they're not life-threatening, thank God. He has road rash all over his body, and he's broken his teeth, his new teeth that just grew in. His nose is broken, his kneecap might be broken, and the doctors put him in an induced coma. They told Carter that if he wasn't wearing the helmet that we bought him, he would have died. So, um, I call Carter's mom, who is more than happy to come over, and so she meets Manny for the first time. Carter and I discuss it, and I go to the hospital that night, and I spend the night. Jay spends about a week at the hospital, and Carter and I take turns spending the night there, and... Manny has to go back to his foster mom's. But we stay in touch and we call him every night to make sure he's okay. And Carter and I take turns sleeping at the hospital. But Jay is so sad. You know, he's just this tiny little boy laying on this hospital bed and he's not smiling and he's not talking. And one night I look at him and I say, Jay, is it okay if I lay in the bed with you and do you want to cuddle and he nods his head yes and I cuddle in bed and we watch a movie together and that night he calls me mommy and it's the first time he calls me mommy after a few days we have a number of conversations with Bertha the social worker and he's doing really well and so the hospital decides he can be released and Bertha decides that both him and Manny can be released into our care so we can officially become their foster parents. It's a lot faster than we originally anticipated but we're so happy and so on my birthday about a week after the accident Manny and Jay are in our care. So Jay's released from the hospital and Manny's home and 
it's wonderful. It's chaotic and noisy, and we have pizza, and the boys are writing birthday cards for me, and there's cake everywhere. And Carter and I, our eyes meet across the table, and we smile because we know that now everything is going to be okay. The next morning is the boys' last day of school. So Carter takes them both to school and I get ready to start my day. So I go into the bathroom and I notice that the shower curtain is all wet, but not the inside of the shower curtain, like the outside. And then I notice that the wall opposite the toilet is all wet. And I notice that there are puddles around the toilet. So I I touch it and I bring my fingers to my nose and it's urine. So I I clean it up and um, I wait for Carter to get home. We talk about it and I'm like, there's urine all over the bathroom. And we decide, you know, maybe it's Jay. He... He's been limping since the accident, so maybe he just, like, lost his balance and was really embarrassed to say anything. So I leave a message for Bertha just to give her a heads up. You know, I know we're supposed to keep in touch with the social worker. And I'm surprised when we get a message saying that she's on vacation. I thought that she would have told us this, but it's okay. So I leave her a message, and we go about our day. Later, Carter brings the boys home, and I go into the bathroom and squish. There's more urine on the floor. So I take out some paper towels and some cleaning supplies, and since the boys are 8 and 10, I decide, like, they can have the responsibility to clean up after themselves. So I go out and I tell them, not try not to make a big deal about it, but just say, hey, you know, I noticed that there was a little bit of spill and if you miss the toilet, it's not a big deal. Just please clean up after yourself. You know, I left some paper towels out there and it's not a big deal. Okay. Later that night, go in the bathroom, squish. I'm really starting to get grossed out. You know, I... I just think it's pretty gross to start stepping in someone else's urine all the time. So I decide, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wear flip-flops into the bathroom. Good solution. It'll be fine. So the next day, I have to go out to the store to buy Jay some clothes because when he was at the hospital, they cut off his clothes and he really didn't have any. Manny was supposed to bring all of his clothes from the foster home, but he only brought his own, which was weird, but that's okay. So I go to the store and I just pick up lots of things. I pick up stuff for Manny, I pick up stuff for Jay, and I buy everything that I think they like. So I know Manny likes sports teams, so I buy stuff with all the logos and all sorts of things. And I come home and I'm showing the boys all their stuff, and at first they're both really excited, and then Manny's face changes and his eyes just get darker and darker and I don't know what's going on and he just starts getting mad. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is ugly. I hate this. I would never wear that. And then he starts throwing things and then, hey, Manny, it's okay. If you don't like it, we'll go to the store together later. We'll return this. You can pick out stuff you like. No, I don't want to do that. And nothing is good enough. But 
I know from the training, this stuff can happen. They've just been through a lot. You know, there's a whole lot of things going on. But then he throws his body on the floor and starts kicking and screaming like he's a toddler. And he is a five foot two, ten year old boy who's losing control of his body and screaming. And, and I start getting scared because he's the same height as me and he is stronger than me probably. And I can't stop this. So I back off and tell him, please calm down. And if you need to take some time and he cuts me off and he runs into his bedroom and he slams the door. And that night, I noticed there's a lot of urine in the bathroom. And so I decide to move my toothbrush and my towel and my shampoo bottle and conditioner bottle out of the bathroom because I'm starting to get really a little nervous around this situation. I leave another message for Bertha because I'm really not sure what to do right now. Carter and I talk about it and he's like, okay, it's fine. They're going to call us back and then we'll hear more. You know, they'll give us some good advice. The next day we think, you know, we just need to have some fun with everything that happened to the accident. You know, they moved in so much faster than we thought. They should go out to the movies. So Carter's like, I'm going to take them out to the movies. You've really taken on a lot of this burden. So why don't you relax? And I'll take them out. You can have the house to yourself. I'm like, oh, thank you so much, Carter. You're such a blessing. So they go out to the movies. And I'm like, I'm just going to read a book. I'm going to lay outside. I'm going to read my book. And first I go use the bathroom. Squish. And it's all over. And my bathroom floor, my only bathroom in this house, has linoleum tiles. So it's not a full sheet of linoleum. It's these little pieces. And when I step on the floor, urine pops up in between all these little pieces. So there is so much urine that it has seeped into the floor. And I am so disgusted. And I just close the bathroom door and I go outside and I'm trying to read. And I just, I can't concentrate because I'm just grossed out. I'm upset. I'm mad. Like, where is Bertha? Why isn't she calling me back? I don't understand. We didn't see any of this in his history. And I don't know if we're doing something wrong. I'm really trying to give him the same amount of attention we're giving Jay. I know this is a highly stressful situation, but I don't know what to do. And I decide, like, I'm not going to be able to relax until I go clean that bathroom. So I go into the bathroom. I have my big jug of bleach. I have my water. I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm scrubbing. I move the cat litter out of the way, and there's just urine under the cat litter. And I'm like, did he pick it up and pee under the cat litter? I don't know. And then I hear the door open, and I think, oh, God, they're already home. And... Bing, bing, bing. Three little faces pop in the doorway and my face is red and I'm sweating and I stink. And I'm like, hi guys, I just just need a few minutes. So I, I close the door and this feeling of rage just starts bubbling up in my chest and I, uh, uh, and I just, uh, <laughs> I just 
scream. I just scream. And I <laughs> scream and I start crying because I'm so frustrated. I just don't know why this is happening and why did the accident happen and why is there urine all over the place and why I'm trying the best I can and none of this has ever happened before apparently but why is it happening now and I'm so upset so I just scream it all out and nothing I don't say any words but it's just this guttural scream and I immediately feel totally embarrassed because everyone in the house heard me so I finish cleaning and walk out of the bathroom and my husband's there and I say that that was not that was not good and he goes no that, that wasn't a good moment but it's okay and we have dinner that evening and boys go to bed and I'm sitting on the couch later and trying to relax and and Manny comes out of his bedroom and he goes into the bathroom and then comes out and makes direct eye contact with me and he walks past Carter and is looking at me and he says, Laura, in this really calm voice, goes, there's urine all over the bathroom floor. And I know there wasn't urine on the bathroom floor because I had just cleaned it up. And I say, okay, Manny, I think you need to clean it up. And he goes, no. And he turns around and walks away. And my heart is beating faster than it has. And I look at Carter and I start shaking. And I say, he's doing this on purpose. Carter, I'm really scared of him. And I jump up out of the couch and I run into the bedroom and I grab my suitcase and I say I, I can't stay here anymore Carter and he's like shh Laura, Laura and I'm like I don't care if you can hear me I can't stay here anymore I am scared of him he's doing this on purpose and he knows it's hurting me and he's doing this on purpose and I start throwing my clothes into my bag and I'm like I just I have to get out of here I don't feel safe in here I don't feel safe in my own home I can't stay here anymore more. And he's like, Laura, Laura, we'll get through this together. We'll just stay here one more night. We're going to talk to Bertha in the morning. I'm like, Bertha is not calling us back. We are alone in this. And he goes, it's okay. We're going to force them to call us and we'll call her supervisor. And I'm like, no, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. I can't stay here. He's like, Laura, this is our home. This is our home. We live here. This is our home. And we can lock the door. It's okay. We'll get this. And so, I put the bag away and I say, okay, but if, if we can't figure something out, I'm, I'm not, I'm not spending another night here. Tonight's the last night I'm spending in here at night because I don't know what he's going to do to me. He's out to get me. I don't know what else he's going to do to me. Okay. Okay. So Carter locks the bedroom door and, and somehow I fall asleep that night. I get out of bed at five in the morning and I don't want to be in the house, so I I go out to the deck and I close the sliding glass door behind me and I start crying because it's so overwhelming and I'm still really scared. And I hear this little tap, tap, tap on the glass sliding door and I, I turn around 
and it's Jay, and he's in his pajamas, and his hair's all messed up because he was sleeping, and he waves at me, and he says, hi, mommy, and I signal to him, I'll be right there, and I try to compose myself because I don't want him to see me cry. Later that morning, I get a call from Bertha, finally, and she's all, Hey, got back from vacation. I heard your messages. And I say, Bertha, I, I really need you to come over because we really need to talk. Um, there's a lot of serious things happening right now. She tries to brush me off, and I, No, really, you need to come over. Okay, so why don't you send the boys to the Boys and Girls Club? They're used to going there when they're with their foster mom. And then uh, we can chat. Okay. So Carter packs him a lunch and he is going to bring them to the Boys and Girls Club. So I give Jay a big hug goodbye, and I get the courage to give Manny a hug goodbye, and um, off they go. So while I'm waiting for Carter to come back and for Bertha to come over, I get a phone call from Carter's mom. She's like, hey, Laura, you know, this thing happened when I was watching Manny the other day, and I kind of debated if I should tell you and I'm like please please Georgia what what happened please tell me well I was in the kitchen with Manny and um you know your your cute cat he walked into the room and Manny was making direct eye contact with me and and he kicked your cat and um my heart stops because because I love this cat because he loves people and he is just this loving beacon of joy and the thought that I could have brought someone into my house that would hurt him breaks my heart and it makes me feel terrible so I thank Georgia for telling me and I hang up the phone and there's a knock on the door, and it's Bertha. She's like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, Bertha, I am not okay. We really need to talk. She's like, okay, well, let's sit at the dining room table. And and she gives me this stupid line of expect the unexpected and, you know, go back to your training. I'm like, no. No, there are some serious things happening. And I tell her about the urine. And I tell her about the tantrums. And about him kicking my cat. And Carter and I made a list of non-negotiables if they brought up during the matching meeting. And the number one was animal abuse. Followed by major property destruction. And the last one was if there was any history of this child abusing people, either physically or emotionally. And I really think Manny is hitting all three right now. And she gets a little serious and she goes, well, you know, I went through his files and I did find some history that we may not have disclosed to you. What? 
Well, you know, it turns out in his last foster home, he did um, pee in the heating vents a few times. What? Yeah, he he would get mad, and then he would go, and he would just urinate in the heating docks and in the vents, and what? Why wouldn't you tell us this? Well, you know, sometimes things get left out. No, 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 no. This is why we have matching meetings. You're just supposed to disclose everything. Well, you know, this got left out. Then, Bertha, I can't do this anymore. He is scaring me. He is scaring me, and I, I scared to be in my own house. Like, I can't. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's capable of. I am not the right person for him. I can't help him. And her tone changes. Well, then there's two options. You can learn how to take care of him. Or you can dissolve the adoption. Okay, I think I think I need to dissolve the adoption. Okay, well then we'll pick up the boys from the boys and girls club today and no 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 um we we are we're doing great with jay you know we have bonded and he's such a love and everything's going no no they're a package deal we don't separate brothers no but no but we really everything's so great with him and and every no and then carter comes home and i look at him and i said they they won't they won't separate the boys and and if we can't take Manny then we can't take Jay and Carter knows that I will not be able to spend one more night in that home with Manny and he knows what they have to do so they pack up some of the boys things and tell us okay we're going to pick them up from the boys and girls club and you won't have to see them again and they leave. Once they leave, the house is empty. And Carter is so sad. And I know that he is mourning. And he's mourning the loss. But I'm angry. I'm angry about the system. That they failed us. And they failed the boys. Because they weren't honest. And then later, when we have friends and family tell us, well, at least you know now. No. No. This should never have happened. They should have told us up front, and we wouldn't have matched with them, and we would have matched with someone else that's a better fit, and would have been better for them, and it would have been better for us. For me, this process of healing has been like a pendulum. I swing back and forth from fear and anger to sadness and nothing. And some days I'm okay. Some days it's right on the surface and others it's faded in the back. Eventually that pendulum has started to slow down. But I don't think it'll ever stop. I just learned to live with the slight sway of the grief.
Folks, that story you just heard got a lot of people talking. Here at Risk, we heard from other people who, like Laura, were still grieving about having attempted what also became disrupted adoptions. We also heard from people who were adopted when they were young. We heard from some social workers with various feelings about that story. And we heard from plenty of folks who just belonged to families where one or two of the children had behavioral issues. And there were some very passionate conversations online, especially over at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. We always encourage that if people are commenting online about what a storyteller shared on Risk, to remember that the storyteller might see your comment. The storyteller may very well read what you said about them. And so it's best to communicate online with the same amount of consideration that you would bring to a face-to-face conversation with a storyteller. Now, Laura Ford saw what people were saying over on Facebook, and she was feeling feelings. So we all thought that it could be helpful and useful for everybody if Cindy Freeman, who was Laura's story coach on this story, and me and Laura all had a conversation about the story and about the reactions people were having to it. So instead of making the story itself longer, we have this follow-up to it. What you're about to hear are just snippets, just little excerpts from that conversation between me, Cindy, and Laura, but I hope it helps to fill in some of the gaps of what people were unclear with or helps people to have more understanding of what they were understandably uncomfortable with from the story. So here it is, excerpts from a conversation about Laura Ford's story, Heartbreak. Why did you decide you wanted to share this story with Risk? Where were you at in the early stages of it all? One of my, the ways I started healing, I really turned to storytelling. We need to hear when people are the bad guy, even when they don't mean to be. We need to hear people make horrible mistakes, horrible accidents, take on too much. We all hurt people, even when we don't intend to hurt people. I also couldn't find a lot of stories about the process of adoption and when it goes wrong. A lot of people don't talk about it because it's such a horrible thing. But I thought, I'm not the only person out there who has gone through this. And if I'm searching for other people's stories, maybe other people are too. So um, maybe I can help someone else if they hear my story. It's hard sharing a story when you're like, I am 100% the bad guy. You know, whatever 
feelings people have listening to this story and whatever feelings they have about me. I guarantee I have thought those things about myself probably times two, times three. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. There are so many children in foster care that need homes. These social workers are under so much pressure. There's not enough social workers. Do you know anything about how the boys are doing now? So we don't know anything about how they're doing. Um, The last time I saw them was when we hugged them goodbye before they went to the Boys and Girls Club. I have no idea what they were told. Um, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing to live with. Um, I hope that they were adopted. I hope that they are together. I know at the end of the story, I say that I was making the deals, <laughs> you know, the the deals with God, as people say, and you know, was begging for to keep the younger brother, you know, that's just those things that you say in those passionate moments. And ultimately, of course, I don't want to separate brothers. Oh, gosh, I hope they're together. I I hope that they have a family that could help Manny with his trauma and the behaviors that resulted from the trauma. Yeah, we have their hand-drawn cards on our refrigerator. It's funny. It's something that Carter and I have never talked about. We just put them up on the fridge, and um, they're there. And I I love that they're there because, because they're a part of my life. For a short time, they were our sons, or they were going to be our sons. So, I mean they're forever in my heart so it when I see it I think about them fondly and I just want the best for them so I think it's important I think it's important to keep those things when someone leaves your life you don't take down their photo (laughs) you keep their photo up because you love them and you care about them and and we care about them so I keep that up So Carter, he's my rock. He's really the most wonderful person I know. And um, we're together in this from the very start. But I know that it's been a horrible struggle for him as well. I didn't want to speak for him in this story. You know, he maybe someday should tell his own version of these events. Um, but, you know, he, he's the one that hopped in the ambulance with Jay. He had to go in the helicopter when they took him to Boston. He was there when they put him in a coma and when the doctors told him that he would have died without a helmet. It was very difficult to try to decide what to include and what not to include. Maybe I could have gone into more details about other things that were happening in the house, other behaviors that we saw from Manny. We talked to so many people, all the resources we reached out to, um, 
a network of like a support group and of experienced adopted parents and they were saying like talk to them about it and some people were saying don't talk to them about it and some people were saying we'll reward them if there isn't any urine on the floor don't reward them at all make them clean it up don't make them clear it up it was so confusing <laughs> the amount of just like do this do this try that try that and i think um there was another incident with our cat that we decided to cut just for length of time. I didn't exactly see what happened, but I walked in and the two boys were fighting with each other and there was talk of, of Manny sticking his finger up my cat's butt. <laughs> and um, I didn't see it and it just felt awkward kind of fitting it into the story. It's hard to process reactions to people hearing the story. Um, I know, Cindy, we talked and then Kevin, we emailed about, I knew that people were not going to like me, <laughs> that this was going to be really hard and I was going to be judged very harshly, but it's still really painful to see those reactions. So I did start to doubt if I told the story correctly. I, I did read that someone commented something about that I tried to make myself be the victim, and that was never my intention. Um, I live with the fact every day that these two boys thought they were going to be adopted by us, and then they weren't. You know, I, I did that. I didn't say that in the story. I think there was a version that we said that, but I we didn't say that because ultimately I don't really know how they're feeling. So this is my story. I can't project their feelings. I know that I have incredible guilt and shame and grief and regret and self-hatred. I tried to portray all that with the pendulum analogy at the end. And that really is how I think of my grief process. But at the same time, I still need to live and I still need to heal myself and at the end of the day I have to know that none of my actions were intentional I didn't do this to hurt anybody so I hope that I hope that deep down people can hear that I think that if anyone is thinking of adopting please don't be deterred by listening to my story there are so many children who need families. I just suggest ask questions during your matching meeting and find the right support networks. But please, please do not take this story as a deterrent. We need families for children. I have a mantra. It is, when the going gets tough, the tough get manicures. <laughs> so that's how I happen to be at Grace Nails, bemoaning my fate in August of 2004. I'd come to Hartford looking for love, and I thought it was going to be easy. 
My marriage had ended, and I was sure I was going to meet my soulmate here. And a guy contacted me on Craigslist. I called him Romeo. He was smart. He was a newspaper editor. He asked me probing questions, and he remembered my responses, and he had a great touch. He rubbed my feet on the second date, and I thought, pretty soon I'm going to get lucky. <laughs> Only he ghosted me before the month was out. And I thought, woe is me. Nobody is ever going to love me. I'm always going to be alone. So when I sat at Grace Nails and the manicurist pulled my fingers and she massaged my palms, it was just a relief when she told me that it was all going to be fine and I could feel the tension and the dejection seeping out of me. She put the yellow polish on me and my nails and then she brought me over to a drying station. And on the table in front of the drying station was a copy of Elle magazine opened up to the article that said extended massive orgasm. I didn't even know what that was, but it sounded great. <laughs> because I wanted to come. I had faked orgasm for the 20 years that I was married and for every sexual partner I was with between the ages of 19 and when I got married at 32. And I wanted delicious orgasms. So I sat down and I started reading the article and it referenced Mama Gina's Guide to the Womanly Arts. Sounded good. I ordered it on Amazon, and as soon as it came, I went to the pool underneath my balcony at my condo, and I was mesmerized by what I was reading, and I could feel these jelly beans in my body because Mama Gina said that pleasure is women's birthright. And I was like, yes! I marched up to my third floor condo and I googled America's Masturbation Queen. <laughs> and I'm going to call her AMQ, just between you and me. And I knew of AMQ because she had a classified ad in the New Yorker advertising a tape, a VHS tape, called Self-Loving. I wrote my check and I sent it. I got a VHS tape back. I ripped it out. I was married. I had two small kids and I marched downstairs to the family room. I put it in, sat down to watch it. And within a couple of seconds, minutes, 10 naked women and AMQ appeared on the screen on the TV screen where my spouse cheered for the Celtics and my six-year-old son watched The Simpsons. And I was apoplectic. I had to get it off. I pressed the eject button. I marched upstairs. I put it in the manila envelope and I hid it in my sock drawer until ten, almost 10 years later when I was leaving because I was getting divorced. So I knew who to call because I had watched it in dribs and drabs over the last year and a half. Hello, this is Doreen Stern, I said to the man who answered. I'd like to schedule a group session with AMQ. 
I'm sorry, she's not doing group lessons anymore. She's only doing private classes. And the fee is $900. $900, it was like somebody punched me in the chest. Who has $900 for that? And the guy, seemingly reading my mind, said, she's worth every penny. And at that moment, I remembered that that guy from Craigslist, let's call him Romeo, he had bragged the last night I saw him about how his cat had gotten sick in the middle of the night, and he was so proud. He took his cat to the cat hospital, and it cost him $1,300. And I realized that if he could pay $1,300, I could pay $900 because my sexuality was worth more than his cat. And that's how I got to be on the Greyhound bus between Hartford and Manhattan, ruminating. I was going to have to be naked in front of a stranger. And if I was going to come, I was going to have to do it in front of her. And how about if I couldn't do it? How about if I was her only client who failed? Did she give refunds? I didn't think so. Still, when I got to the Port Authority, I hailed a cab. I said, Madison and 23rd. As soon as I got out, I saw a deli. I got myself a salad. I walked across the street and I ate the salad in the lobby, wondering if the doorman knew what A&Q's line of work was. <laughs> and then if I was going to be her next client. And then it was getting close to noon. It was time for me to go upstairs, took the elevator and I got out. I was in front of her door, a brown door, and I thought to myself, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And this voice said, you've been wanting to do this for 31 years. And I said, yes. I bought books. I bought armfuls of books. And the voice said, but it didn't work. No, I couldn't find the on switch. And then she said, now you know that pleasure is your birthright and you've got an expert to help you. <sighs> I squared my shoulders and I hit the buzzer. And the door opened and a woman shorter than I answered. And she had white hair that stuck up sort of like in a crew cut, white and gray. And I knew she looked older than on the movie, probably 15 years had gone by. And Wikipedia had said she was 76. And she welcomed me and she showed me, I knew that this was the room, the foyer that I had seen on the video. And she told me where to hang my purse. There was a peg and take off my shoes. And then she put her hand out, her palm out. And I knew what that was for because she had called me the week before and asked me to bring the $900 in cash. So I had gone to the ATM and it spit out 4520s and it was a thick wad. And I gave her the envelope and she said, thank you. And she said, I'm going to give you a tour of my apartment so you feel safe. And she turned around and I followed her. And it was a big living room, a room that would have been a living room in somebody else's house. But there was no furniture in this house, and I recognized it because there had been a circle of women in it that I saw on the video. Their heads were on the outside and their feet were on the inside like they were synchronizing 
swimming, but they had vibrators on their private parts. And there were big canvases on the walls. I wanted to stare at them because they were naked people, women with huge breasts and men with big penises, and they were touching each other and touching themselves. And I was so embarrassed. All I could do is stare at my yellow toenails and keep walking. And then there was a kitchen and a bathroom, and then there was another door. And AMQ put her a hand on it, turned the knob, and then we walked in, and holy fuck, there was a guy sitting there behind two computer monitors. He was young, maybe like in his 20s. He was wearing a tight black muscle shirt. He had black hair and bushy eyebrows and a big nose, and he kind of looked like a rodent. What was he doing there? And AMQ said, this is Aaron. He's my lover, and he won't disturb us. And, and I thought, really? We're, we're, we're 20 feet where I'm going to be, where I'm going to be naked. And is he going to be at the door listening, getting off at my benefit? And then the voice said, you had orgasms, didn't you? And I said, yes. When I was 15, my high school boyfriend and I, my first boyfriend, walked home from the movies in the dark and I invited him in and my parents were asleep. And before too long, we started making out on the parquet floor in our living room. Sometimes he was on top and sometimes I was on top. I liked it better when I was on top. He never touched my skin, but he twisted my nipples and he put his the palms of his hands on the back of my ass and he pulled me in to him and we humped and I felt this huge force coming up, 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 up. And then it would hang on the top of my head and it was like I was in a barrel and I was on the top of Niagara Falls. And then I would go over and it would be this huge shudder and it was the best feeling in the world and I want it again. <laughs> and once again, I squared my shoulders and when AMQ turned on her heel, I followed her. And we got back into the living room and she said, take off your clothes. <laughs> so I took off the silk blouse I was wearing that was unbuttoned and a black camisole and a black strapless bra and a silk skirt I had and the thong that I had bought for that occasion. And I just stood there and she said, sit over there. <laughs> and I, it was shady there and I didn't have any clothes on and I said how about in, over there where it's sunny and she put her face as close to mine as she could get it so I could see every wrinkle on her 76 year old face and she said if you're going to come you're going to do it my way my way do you get it I've been doing this for 50 years it's my way <laughs> <laughs> So I went to sit next to the where she told me to, and I was thinking, this didn't seem so safe to me. <laughs> and I knew it was coming because I'd seen it on the video. AMQ slid a pie-shaped mirror underneath me. This was called the genital show and tell. And she looked and said, this is your vulva. And I thought, I thought my vagina was down there, but maybe I've got it wrong. And then she said, 
you've got a gorgeous clit. There it is. And I said, thought, nobody's ever told me I had a gorgeous clit. And then she said, there's your urethra and your vagina and your anus and your labia. And it seemed like she was labeling constellations. And my body was there, but I had disassociated myself from my body. It was just so weird, like what, what was going to go on and what was going to come next. And then she pointed to the middle of the room and she said, go live there. And I looked and there was a purple towel with colored pillows. Somehow I hadn't noticed it during the tour. And I went and lay down and she showed me how to rock my pelvis and also to synchronize my breathing. And she said, good job. And she pat me on the shoulder. And then she had a bag and she leaned down and she took a two inch vibrator out of her bag. And she told me to put my palm out and I did. And she said, put it on your pussy. And I did. She told me to rock and breathe. And then she said, feel good. And I said, mm-hmm. And then she put her hand out and I put it back in and she took out another vibrator, a medium sized vibrator. And she said, put it on your pussy. And I did. She said, even better, right? And I said, yes, closing my eyes. And then she gave me a tap and her hand was out. And then she leaned down and she took out this enormous vibrator. It had a head as big as a shower head and a long stalk. It was a magic wand, the Cadillac of vibrators I would later learn. And she gave me a washcloth, a yellow washcloth also. She told me it was so, this vibrator was so powerful, it would hurt my lady bits without the washcloth. And I put it on me and she told me to rock and I did. And she, as I rocked, she poured some massage oil on my vulva. I was thinking, what's the fuck's going on here? And, <laughs> and, and then I could feel the force coming up, 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 and it was hanging on my head. I was in the barrel. And then suddenly I shuddered and I was over Niagara Falls and I thought, oh, I did it. I did it. And I wanted to put my clothes on and rush out of there and take the bus to go back to Hartford. She said, not so fast. <laughs> and she bent down and she took out a barbell, a silver barbell, a dildo in most people's lexicon. And there was one bigger ball on one side, kind of like a little bit, the circumference bigger than a quarter and one, the circumference as a dime. And she said, the bigger ball was for my vagina and the little ball was for my anus. And I thought, put something in my anus? Like, what was she thinking? But she told me to put it on my vagina. She said it would, it will open up, she said. And she was right, it did. And she told me to pull it in and out. And then there was a tap on my knee and she started pulling it in and out of me. And I thought, oh my God, where have I come to? And then like, I could feel the shudder, like the force was coming up, 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 and I was over and I made, ah! Oh! And I didn't care if 
Aaron could hear or the doorman or the people on Madison Avenue. It didn't matter. And I came two more times during my session with AMQ. And the last time I flipped my legs up horizontal, looking up so my feet were facing the ceiling. And I started to tip over to go into a plow position. And I saw AMQ's face. She was just astonished. And then I realized I'd gone to the head of the class. Nobody had ever flipped over and done it, gone into a, started to do the plow and then went into a somersault. And then I put my clothes on. And then she walked me to the door. And she said, you're going to do fine. And she was right. Because I bought myself my own magic wand. And I bought one of those barbells from AMQ. And I bought some massage oil from AMQ. And then I discovered female erotica. So it was a complete package. And some people asked me, well, how about partner sex? And I lured the guy from Craigslist, Romeo, back three times. And then I remembered that I really wanted to love somebody. And that person hasn't come along yet. I'm hoping he will, but that, you know, there's no science guarantee. However, what I can tell you is that I've learned to love the one I'm with, myself. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Divinals behind me now, and we just heard from Doreen Stern. We love when older folks come on the show to share with us. Now, when Doreen was workshopping that story with us, she decided it was best to keep the name of that legendary sex educator a pseudonym. That's because at the time the story was being shared on our live stream, we knew that Betty Dodson was near death. And we didn't want to risk any little bits of possible controversy popping up about Betty when she was in her final days. Betty wrote the best-selling book, Sex for One, she was a huge inspiration to us on this show. She was bold and brash, just such a vigorous personality. Talk about someone who did not censor herself. Betty was not concerned about potentially offending people. She was always throwing caution to the wind and speaking her mind 
without filters. But she had such a zest for life, such passion for teaching women to own their sexualities, to relish sexual adventures, to celebrate being sexual animals as animalistically as you damn well feel like being. Society needs more voices like Betty Dodson's, people who are willing to go out on a limb and be brutally honest and help others to defy conformity and let go of shame. When I first met Betty, it was at a little house party and she was introduced to me and she looked at me very suspiciously and said, oh, so you're the kinky podcast guy, huh? What's the filthiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> well, we were in mixed company, so I whispered my answer in her ear and her face lit up with this mischievous grin and she punched me in the arm hard and said, Oh, I like you. <laughs> you can hear Betty on a 2014 episode of Risk called Three Women. The next Risk live stream show is on Friday, March 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. If you'd like to hire me for storytelling training, I'm at kevinallison.com. I do lots of one-on-one -on -one sessions with people, helping people work on stories they want to share on shows like this one, or work on their memoirs, or work on job interviews or presentations, sometimes eulogies or wedding toasts, or people working on their own podcast. So again, that's at kevinallison.com. And to talk with other fans about the stories you hear on the show, join the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or look for our subreddit, Risk Podcast. You can also follow our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Lady. Lady, 